0: Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the Mile High Five Podcast. My name is Doug Cunnington. And in this episode, we have the great and wise JL Collins. It was recorded live at the Mr. Money Mustache HQ in Longmont, Colorado. Sadly, I'm not really in the episode anymore. I was behind the camera, I was recording, and I tried to do my best to get the highest quality audio and video but I am hardly a professional, so I did my best. All that to say, sometimes the audio has a little bit of noise there. We did our best, and my great editor did her best to make sure we had the best quality, and really, at worst, you're just gonna get a little bit of extra noise. Uh, Generally, you could always hear what JL is saying or what Carl is saying, and That said, the live audience was fantastic. We had questions uh, from, you know, several people. Nothing was specifically planned except for some of those early questions, which you'll understand how all this fits together very soon. So thanks for checking out this episode. I'm going to send it over. I'm not going to ramble on too much. But if you dig these, please do subscribe wherever you're listening to this or watching this. We really appreciate it. And I'm going to send it over, and I'll probably catch you on the back end afterwards. And be sure to check out JL's stuff. He has a new book out, which will provide links in the show notes and description, so you'll be able to get to it. And don't forget, we do have an email list out there, milehighfi.club, or you can follow the link wherever you are consuming this. And without further ado, let's send it over to JL and Carl.
1: Okay, action. So we have JL Collins here tonight. (laughs)
2: and And we showed up
1: anyway (laughs) yeah thanks jail so we're going to have an interview section in a minute but before we do that i'm going to have a little audience participation part does anyone want to win any fabulous prizes we have up here we have a bunch of jail comms books (laughs) and he will sign that but to win it you have to come up and you have to read a statement and tell me if this statement is in a jail Collins book. So it's a true or false
2: scenario. I don't
1: think I scenario. can do it. <laughs> I, be I think Amberly volunteered to do the first one. So this first one is from the Simple Path to Wealth. You need to come up here, read this, and tell me if this quote is actually in the Simple Path to Wealth or not. And J.L. Collins will be the official judge.
2: Yeah, like I would know. <laughs>
0: I like to VTSAX and chill.
1: (laughs) So Amberly, is that in The Simple Path to Wealth or not?
0: I'm going to go with a yes. Sounds great. The answer is no, isn't
1: it? Uh, Jail, do you know what that term means, by the way? Yeah.
0: I feel like it shouldn't be in a book.
1: She said, I like to VTSAX and and chill. chill.
0: chill. Netflix and chill. Have you heard of this?
2: Okay. Um, no. <laughs> I, I don't remember putting that in the book.
0: No, you, you probably didn't. But it's a
2: great line. It
0: is.
1: It it means to fornicate.
2: Carl, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in Colorado.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna give Amberly a book anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Who, who would like to volunteer for the next round of humiliating, I mean, questions? Um, Pete would like to come up. And then Chelsea is next. Uh,
2: uh, I hope this is a hard one.
1: So true or false, is this quote in the simple text? I've path studied to the well. book extensively, so I think I will be able to
2: know if it's you really in there. You probably know it better than I do. Because I read it every night. It's like my Bible. Well, doesn't everybody.
1: Praise jail. <laughs> I just bought a $119 LL, L.L. Bean bed for my dog. It's going back. He won't sleep on it. Wait a minute. I was going to say no, but then J.L. has written a lot about beds and stuff. But are we talking about just in the book? Yeah. Is that in The Simple Path? To okay. All... I believe the answer is no. Yeah.
0: It is. It yeah. is. Oh. 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 <laughs> It is in the book.
2: No book for you. Oh, that's fair. Black licorice. I can't believe it. Can't. Oh, yeah. That's fair. I was like 50-50 on whether that was in the book or
1: in like a blog post.
2: You, you need to go back and read it again. <laughs> with my prayers.
3: With, with your, hi, with your <laughs> highlighter. Oh,
2: well,
1: there's so much highlighting on there.
2: Already. So that must be the one line that's down I don't like that. Just go, go find that.
1: Yeah, so do I really get bad black licorice You can get a book and you can give it to someone else if you want, or keep it for yourself. Well, wait a so a what kind of contest yeah. is this? Is I, a, and you get the black licorice so you have to take that too. Wait a, a second.
2: He gets it wrong and he gets both prizes. Amberly got it wrong too. I, I got, I got a million. So how come he, I'm sure she didn't get black licorice too? Where are you, Amberly? <laughs> I'm looking out for you.
1: Okay, so Chelsea is the third victim, I mean, volunteer. So there's the microphone.
3: I hope
2: you do better than the first two,
1: Chelsea. <laughs> I'm VTSAXy and I know it.
2: <laughs> or, or would you say VT So you can... BT sexy. BT sexy.
1: It, it's a two part. You could say if this applies to you and if it's in the book. Uh, yeah, I'd say yes and no, it's not in the book.
2: <laughs> it, it would have been if I'd thought of it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay, number four. Who wants to do number four? Oh. Okay,
2: Mike. This is
1: a good one. Avoid physically irresponsible people and certainly don't marry one. I'm going to say
0: that's in the book.
1: Yeah, okay. it's in the book.
2: I'm yes, there. indeed.
1: So, so JL, I question for you before we start the formal interview. But what do you do if you meet someone who ticks like every box, but then they don't ticks? They don't tick the VTSAX box. What What do you do then?
2: Every box on what?
1: Like they're you're attracted to them like they're good you mesh with them in every other way a potential partner oh, oh, but then they're not you're asking
2: me for dating advice <laughs> <laughs> for
1: for the others here now not I for know me why you just
2: like so. Oh. Oh.
1: so you meet someone who a potential partner who takes every box are awesome in every way but they're not financially with it they they don't like the simple path to wealth what happens then what what do you do about this situation
2: well, why would you even engage with someone? <laughs>
1: so that there's no magic pill or any way to turn them around.
2: To uh, you, you need to say you need to ask me questions. I'm qualified to answer. <laughs> I have zero qual. I've been married in almost forty years. I don't know anything about dating. So, so, <laughs> so and what I knew before that. Probably wasn't any useful information. So.
1: Okay. So, so book three is not going to be dating or romantic advice. To
2: yeah, yeah. Let make a note.
1: Amberly, I see some collaboration here. Maybe I know you did that <laughs> yeah, dating go. event. at
2: Oh, there you go. Let's collaborate. I, we have a book in our, we have a book in our future.
1: <laughs> okay. So we have two more questions. The next one actually applies to jails new book. Who would like to do one about real estate? It looks like Mark wants to come up and, and do this one. Yes, he did. I was so house horny, I felt like a Hoboken hound dog in heat. <laughs> and, I just, and I just read the book, but somehow I do not believe that is in the book. <laughs> Correct, that is not in the book.
2: You know, it might have been in the foreword that Christie wrote. <laughs>
1: What, what is her word? Isn't it home boners, I home thought? Home boner. Yeah, home boner, okay. Okay. <laughs> I have one more, and this one is actually for Scott Trench, who um, will appreciate this one once he reads oh. it. Yeah. yeah. So, by the way, everyone, this is recorded for my podcast, the Mile High fi Podcast, so... Before I read what's on oh wait, wait! Microphone, Scott.
3: Microphone.
1: Yeah. All right. Before I read what's on this paper, I just have to tell you that the Mile High Five podcast is the best thing ever. <laughs> Doug and Carl, you've changed my life. Oh, <laughs> Scott, you didn't have to say that. That—that's what's on the paper. <laughs> How
2: does it compare to the bigger pockets? Uh, not, in the the
1: podcast? not in the book.
2: you <laughs> <laughs> this a man a prize.
1: Thank you Scott, I, Doug and I really appreciate that. <laughs> okay, so now we finally get to the main event. I'll stop talking and Jill can start talking. I'm gonna, I have a couple of questions for you, I think, and then I'll turn it over to the audience. Um, yeah, and I guess my first question is, for you is, what do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about index funds? The simple path to wealth is basically a testament to index funds, right? So what do people still argue with you about when you talk about index funds?
2: Well, that's kind of two questions, but I I think the first question, the thing that that rubs my fur the wrong way is a backhanded compliment that I occasionally get. And the compliment goes something like, uh, talking about the book, oh, this is a great book for investing for those people who really don't want to take the time to learn about it and just want to go the easy path and, you know, for, that's the vast majority of people. So if you don't want to take the time to learn about investing, you can do indexing. And uh, my response to that is, well, I appreciate the fact that you like the book and you think it's valuable for those people. But it's not just for people who don't want to learn about investing. If I thought there was a more powerful way to invest than indexing that took a little more effort, that's what I would have written about so I write about indexing because it is the easiest approach, it's the simplest approach, uh, but it's also the most powerful over time. And so that's why that that comment, even though it's meant most often as a compliment, kind of rubs my further the wrong way. And I spent decades, by the way, being a stock picker and by extension trying to pick actively managed funds that were run by stock pickers. So I spent a long time resisting indexing myself and looking for that slightly better way to do it, or even massively better way, which is what I was hoping for. But even if I would found a slightly better way, that would have been the book I'd written. I would have written.
1: Do you think the problem with index funds is usually in life the simplest answer isn't the best, isn't the the great answer, like if you want to... If you want to make a lot of money, you've got to go to school and become an engineer. If you want to do great things, you're going to put a lot of hard work into it. But index investing is one of the things that's the opposite. The least amount of effort generates the best returns. Um, what do you think about that?
2: I think that's true. And I think it is counterintuitive because most of the things we do in life, the more effort you put into it, the better you result. Right? If you want to learn how to play the violin, the more you practice, the better you're going to do if you want to play basketball. The more time you're on the court, the better you're going to be. But investing, almost in a counterintuitive way, the more you fiddle with it, the less well you are likely to do. Uh, My daughter, for instance, is she's really the one I wrote the book for, so she's kind of the model I have in my mind. She's extraordinarily bright but really has very very little interest in investing but she's smart enough to know that she needs to know enough to handle her money because if you know how to handle money life is a whole lot easier than if you don't and i tell her in many respects that's her superpower because she now knows the simple couple of steps she needs to take invest in index funds hold them forever and put as much money in as you can whenever you can and then forget about it, which is very counterintuitive, as you said. But that's her superpower, because Jessica will never be tempted to tinker with it. She probably won't even notice if the market drops 10 20%, maybe a major crash she'll notice. But because she's never going to be tempted to tinker with it, because she's going to keep putting money in it consistently, her lack of interest in the subject, when she has that kind of basic stuff that's, if I can be self-promoting in the book, her lack of interest actually is one of the more powerful things she can do. Uh, I have two kinds of readers that, that come to me. Uh, there are people like my daughter, uh, and that's really who I write for. And then, of course, because it's investing, there are people who are really kind of interested in investing. You know, they think it's cool, and, and, and that's great. I love to have those people there, but they're the ones that are probably going to do less well because they're the ones who are always going to be fiddling with it and tinkering with it. And by the way, that describes me, right? It's, I'm always tempted to fiddle and tinker, and I did it for a lot of decades.
1: Yeah, I think there's a famous Warren Buffett quote that said, the people with exceptionally high IQs aren't the best investors, because they always think they can figure out some advantage, and, and Is they usually it can't. coming here.
2: No! <laughs> I guess yeah, it could a, be. An insult. Even the stupid people
1: can do this. <laughs> well, well, you said you're a tinker, but it's interesting what Warren Buffett says. And I know he's left, uh, I think ninety-five or ninety-nine percent of his money to index funds. He's like, this is what most people should be doing. Well,
2: that's what he tells his heirs to do,
1: right? Yeah. yeah. And, and with that said, Berkshire Hathaway hasn't beaten the S and P five hundred in a long time. Maybe, maybe like once in the past ten years. But um, he has not been able to do it. One of the greatest investors of all time. Right. But I always think about that, like if Warren Buffett says the smartest people in the world aren't the best investors, and that's why they think they have can figure out some advantage, and they can't. So intelligence, again, it's one of, back to the simplicity thing, it's one of the few things in life where high intelligence might hold you back.
2: Well, I don't, so I don't know if I'm one of the smartest people in the world, but I will say that, you know, index invest, it's, so, it's counterintuitive in the sense that at least for me, and I think for a lot of people who are pretty smart and are kind of into this, you look at it and you say, well, wait a second, if, it should be easy to beat the index. All I have to do is avoid the dogs. If I just avoid the really bad stocks, the really bad companies, then I should be able to outperform. Or if I just pick the really good companies, if I just go with the Googles and the Teslas, then I should be able to outperform over time. And the problem with that is, first of all, the research indicates that that, in fact, isn't what happens, even if you're a professional and have all the tools that money can buy at your disposal. Because today's high flyers, we were talking about this before we started, you know, when I was young, Sears was one of the most powerful companies in the world. It built one of the tallest buildings, in fact, I think you told me, the tallest building in the world, for, you know, it was tallest for I don't know how long. And now Sears is kind of a joke. I mean, things don't stay the same. So today's high, powerful companies uh, like Xerox and like Polaroid and like General, oops I'm a few decades old. I'm sorry, like Google. I mean, you know, they're maybe tomorrow's old news. And by the same token, you know, the dogs of today might be tomorrow's exciting turnaround stories. And the problem is you don't know. And that's the advantage that indexing gives you is you always are owning everything, and those that prosper rise to the top, and you benefit from that. I don't have to predict which stocks are going to do best. I know I'm going to own them because they'll rise to the top of my index funds. I don't have to worry about which ones are going to do poorly because I know those will just kind of fade away and be replaced with new blood. By the way, the Buffett quote I thought you were going for, was, uh, he said something to the effect, he he was asked why so many people do so poorly in the market. And he said, well, no, in 1900, the market was something like six, I'm going to get these numbers wrong, so forgive me, the market was something like six, 600, and it closed the century at 14,000 or something like that. He said, you look at that and you say, how could anybody lose money in a market that does that? So, the answer is they try to dance in and out of the market. They try to time the market.
1: Yeah, there's a famous Peter Lynch quote around that, too. I think it goes something like, People have lost more money trying to time the market than they've actually made in the markets, or something like that. I didn't say that eloquently. Do you know which quote I'm talking yeah, about, Jim? I don't you? know
2: the quote, but I certainly agree with the sentiment.
1: Yeah, very true. So, I'm curious. I want to talk about your new book, but before I do that, how many people here are index fund investors? And how many are real estate investors? Okay, so we probably have... And how many are both? Yeah. Is there a name for that? Like polyinvestorists? Oh, <laughs>
2: polyinvestorists? <laughs> that sounds like a dinosaur.
1: <laughs> is that you're all taken? Someone reserve it quick. It's mm-hmm. going to be gone soon. It probably is already gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember talking to you when the Simple Path to Wealth came out and you talked about the tremendous effort it took to write the book and I, after you told me that, I didn't think you'd write another one, and here you yeah, are. Neither. <laughs> so So tell us about the second book and how that came about.
2: So the second book was is, if, for those of you who have read it, you already know this. It's a very different kind of book from The Simple Path to Wealth. It's almost more of a novel. It's a narrative. It's, it was a lot more fun to put together. It's illustrated. It tells the story of my first and fairly disastrous uh, real estate purchase that morphed into a real estate investment and, you know, somebody had come up with a checklist of here are all the things you can do wrong when you buy real estate and I don't think there'd be any box unchecked in this particular deal. But decades later, I can see the humor in it and I could see the lessons in it. So that was kind of fun to tell that, to tell that story. And then because it's illustrated and I got to work with the illustrator and I, even though it's my book, uh, I won't say the writing's brilliant, but because it's not my illustrations, I will say the illustrations are absolutely brilliant and, and uh, add a lot to it. So it was a it was a much more fun as a project, and that's why I did that one second, is to the one that I might do third, which will be a more arduous uh, project.
1: Wait, so there might be a third book, or there might be really because
2: this one was fun. <laughs> so,
1: so you want to torture your, yourself again is what you're saying? Or?
2: Yeah, well, you got to do something in your old age.
1: So y- you told us some of your numbers. I'd like to know if you remember them. What year did you buy this property? And if you had invested in the index funds at the time you bought this property, how much money would you yeah. have now? Yeah, you laugh.
2: So I, I'm not going to remember the numbers exactly, but I, I bought it in 79. And I, I, I don't... I didn't run the numbers based on how much I paid. I paid $45,000 for it, which was significant in those days. Um, I didn't run the numbers as to what $45,000 would have been. I ran the numbers based on when all the dust settled, what my total loss was. And I think it came to about $30,000. And I, I put that in the calculator and so said, what if I'd taken that $30,000 and put it not in VTSAX because that fund hasn't been around long enough, but in the S P and 500 fund. And it came to like a million-plus dollars. Like so yeah. when I really want to torture myself, that's what, I, that's what I do.
1: But maybe the book will sell enough copies to offset that loss. <laughs> Probably in this very room.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, I think at this time I'd like to open up for questions. If you feel sure. shy about coming up to the microphone, you could just say it here. I will restate it. And then JL can answer it. If you don't feel shy, come up to the microphone and and say it there.
2: Yeah.
1: And this could be about are, are you cool with answering questions about new next funds or, or real estate and the new book?
2: Anything. Or okay. The meaning of life. Wow. <laughs> Origin of the universe.
1: Back up. I've got some more questions then.
2: <laughs> Where the dinosaurs still roam. <laughs> well,
3: um, there's. My understanding is that there's two major ways to invest, active and passive. And my understanding is you're um, advocating for, towards people to passively invest. Correct. My question would be, it, it looks like whenever you are heavily involved, you have the potential, not only for higher risk, but also for higher reward. Why would you suggest uh, for the general public to go into passive investing instead? And why are the major advantages other than not having to be actively like looking into it?
2: So, great question. In fact, the, the next blog post, maybe not the next blog post, but the blog post I'm working on at the moment is, is just about act, the drawbacks of being an active investor. Um, some of them off the top of my head are it's, it's a lot more work. The research indicates that the odds are very much against you. It's an intoxicating thing to do, by the way. I actually achieved financial independence being an active investor. And there are few things more intoxicating than, and you can vouch for this with your Tesla stock, than picking a, a company, investing in the stock, and then having it work. And that's a, that's a wonderful feeling, and at least that's the flame that kept this moth going back to it. But the problem is, it's very, very difficult to do that consistently. And when you, if you really sit back and objectively measure your results across all the companies you're investing in, the research tells us that over the long term, it's going to be very hard to outperform the index. Now, it's hard to say that for individual investors because they're not monitored. But it's categorically true of professionals. And certainly, individual investors have some advantages over professionals. Right? Professionals have pressure to perform quarter to quarter that perhaps forces them to make buying decisions that might not be the best for the long term that an individual wouldn't have. But the corollary of that is the professionals have an arsenal of tools at their disposal that the individual doesn't have. And I don't know, I look at that. The analogy that I that I use in the book, if you think you want to be an active investor, the first question you should ask yourself is, Am I Warren Buffett? And if the answer to that is no, then you should probably be an indexer. Uh, It's the same reason I wouldn't get in the ring with Mike Tyson. I could engage Angelo, of course, I'm dating myself, but back in the day, I could have engaged Angelo Dundee. I could have gone through all the same training that Tyson went through, and you know what? It still would have been a really bad idea, (laughs) so.
3: Thank you. And as a follow-up to the same question, sure. how about how about uh, starting compared to starting a business, or for example, real estate, where you can actually like rent it out and have some tax advantages?
2: Sure. So let's start with the real estate comparison first, and then I'll I'll talk about the business because that's a question that I I get a fair amount. So. There is, there's no question that there's a lot of money to be made investing in real estate. And a lot of fortunes have been made investing in real estate. And I imagine in this room, there are people who've made quite a bit. In fact, I know in this room there are people who have made quite a bit of money in real estate. I think the comparison, though, is not VTSAX or index funds versus a given real estate investment, but VTSAX versus investing in real estate and investing your time because real estate is if you invest in real estate you're investing in a business basically and like any business you'd better take the time to learn how that business works and to study it and to make sure that you don't make the mistakes that they make and i have a copy of that that i describe in that particular book so you're really comparing a past very passive investment with a fairly active investment even if you set it up to be passive with, with uh, property managers and what have you, you still have to manage them. So I think that's the comparison. And if that's how you want to spend your time, if you want to spend your time building a real estate business, then that's a wonderful path for making money. And I have no argument with it. I've invested in real estate successfully in the past. For me, it's too much like work. But that doesn't mean you can't make money doing it. My answer for any kind of business would be the same. Uh, Starting a business, if you're successful with it, and my little blog and book has turned into a surprisingly successful business, it's it's a great option. But it's a different kind of animal. I think it's an apples and oranges sort of comparison, if that makes sense.
3: It does. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
1: Back to your his first question. Most active investors don't consistently beat the indexes over a. The, the longer you stretch out the amount of time, they don't beat it. And if they do, it's hard to tell if they've done it due to luck or or some other factor. I mean, right. The, like even Warren Buffett, we talked about before, he hasn't beaten the markets in a long time.
2: Yeah, there is. A, I can't think of who, who wrote it, but recently I came across a an article, and they were talking about Bill Miller, actually, who was a very, very successful uh, fund manager. And he outpaced the market for 15 years in a row or something, which is a phenomenal result. And then suddenly he didn't. I mean, suddenly his, you know, his approach simply didn't work anymore because the market moved in a in a different direction. and. The person who was writing the article, uh, I, I can't quote it. I can't quote it very well, but basically said, you know, the the headline here shouldn't be Bill Miller beats the market. The headline should be something to the effect of somebody was bound to beat the market over fifteen years. Oh, it happened to be this lucky man, Bill Miller. And I draw the analogy that with the lottery, so. When you have the lottery and you have all these people going out and buying tickets All these different number combinations one of them and sometimes a couple of them are going to turn out to be the winning lottery Combination and that person's going to be rich Nobody at least I hope nobody is silly enough to look at that and say ah John has figured out how to pick winning lottery numbers, right? We don't we don't think that we all sit back and we say John got extraordinarily lucky. And there's a fairly accurate, I think, school of thought that says when you look at people like Bill Miller, and I don't mean to take anything away from him in particular, you have to ask yourself, is that really skill or are you looking at a lottery winner? And there seems to be a lot of research that indicates that it's a lottery winner. You mentioned Warren Buffett hasn't outperformed the market for a long time. I didn't didn't know that. But
1: yeah. They publish their results, yeah. and it,
2: it, it's Even so complicated. For the best, it's hard
1: to do. Yeah, it's so complicated. Your stock price is not necessarily a reflection on the business, either. So maybe his businesses are doing great, and the stock price just isn't reflected in it for what, whatever reason. Just another complication for active investors. Next question, and we have Amberly. Okay. I've met your wife. She's lovely. You said you were married for 40 years.
2: On this coming spring.
1: Oh, congrats. That's awesome. And your book is written for your daughter. And what were the money conversations you had in your household? And would you do something different with the information you have today? With my daughter? Just in the household, if you included your wife in your finances, did you guys talk about it on a weekly basis? What would you give, I guess, almost advice for single people or
0: uh, people in relationships to be able to talk about money in the household?
2: Well, so as regards to my daughter, I guess, you know, who who would have thought that a four-year-old wouldn't be engaged in going through the Wall Street Journal? You know, I mean, I, 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 but evidently, mine wasn't. Uh, Regarding my wife, I I, I used to tell the story that that we've had obviously a successful marriage, it's lasted for a long time and one of the keys is that we are completely uh, compatible financially, right? We have the same attitudes towards money and I used to tell the story that this is entirely due to luck because when we were dating we never talked about the subject so I just Thought, wow! I got particularly lucky that in in the woman I chose. Well, I told that story in front of Jane one time, and she said, "What do? On our first date, you told me I should save 50 percent of my income." <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess sometimes I talk about these things without knowing that I'm talking about these things.
1: <laughs> So. Set, set
2: expectations early is what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in my case, unconsciously, and but she still she went out with me the second time, so I think she was already on board. <laughs>
1: you. Thank you. JL, I think your next book should be a, a dating book, actually. Dating book. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, it's, it's funny. You, yeah, it's, it's funny you talk about that. On my first date, I brought a coupon. It was like buy one get one free. <laughs> and, I'd forgotten about it, but Mindy reminded me of it. She's like, you remember when we went to that barbecue place? I'm like, sort of. I remember you didn't like it much, but you still went on a second day, to too. She's like, you, went, you brought a buy one, get one free coupon. I'm like, oh, jeez. <laughs> And she's like, "No, no, I thought it was a good thing." So, yeah. So the funny thing is, we didn't talk about money either. We had zero conversations, but there were the little hints. And hopefully, if Jane would have heard, say, fifty percent, or if Mindy would have heard, the the buy one get one free coupon, and they didn't, they weren't along for the ride. They would have bailed at that point. So even though we didn't talk about it directly, we kind of did. But,
2: but evidently I talked about directly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 you did. Well, there'll be no second (laughs) day.
1: Jail. I I think you should have a book and a dating site. Like you could have a bunch of questions, (laughs) like uh,
2: plenty of. I do think a dating site for the FI community is is an awesome idea. I've heard that. I've heard from a lot of people who come to Chautauqua and. And who are single, and, and uh, you know, it's it's hard to find like minded people. Yeah, so how would well, you? I think it's a great idea, but I, I'm not sure I'm the person to do it. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I'm not. I, I, I've
1: thought of it too, uh, but I guess the one issue I have is a lot of people in the FI community have money because we're smart and save, so it might attract. Yeah like the gold digger people. You'd have oh, to find a, a way to filter those people out. <laughs> yeah.
2: that's, that's a risk. Yeah, That's why I'm your friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: uh, Mark, did you have a question?
3: Yeah, yeah I have a question. Um,
0: I know in uh, the Simple Paths you talk about the Total Stock Market Index Fund, and I thought it was in there or it was either on a follow-up podcast that you said, at some point I might consider the total international stock right. index as well. I was right. just wondering if that is if there's any new information about that or where you stand on that at this point.
2: Yeah, I don't know that there's any new information, but maybe I'll will sort of make a couple of comments about that. You know, when I when I give talks internationally uh, to non U.S. audiences, I I, I I talk a little differently. And my recommendation for those people is that you ought to be in an international fund, a fund that invests all around the world. And the reason is that we live in the only country in the world that has an economy that is big enough and dominant enough that we can get away with investing just in this country. And I I only invest in the United States, at least at this point. And it's not that I don't think international is important, but I think I've got it covered because the largest U.S. companies are international companies. And the U.S. has the best accounting standards and and the best supervision with the SEC of any place in the world. So I can get that international exposure with minimum risk and also minimum cost. But there's no other country in the world where I would invest only in that country. And I think if I were a Brit, or uh, a German or Japanese. It would feel very uncomfortable to put all my money in a country other than my own like the United States. I think I'd be more inclined to just go international and you're going to wind up with 50 percent of your money in the US if you do that. I do say to my daughter that at some point, she's also all in US at the moment, say this is something you're going to pay attention to because at some point you're going to, even as a U.S. resident, you're probably going to want to invest in that international fund. And my thinking behind that is this. If you go back to World War II, the United States was the only country that wasn't left in ashes. I mean, literally, the rest of the, of the modern world, or the industrialized world, was, was in ruins. And so we represented, essentially, the entire world economy but then of course the rest of the world began to rebuild and as that happened two things occurred one is that the economic world pie got bigger and bigger as these other countries returned to health and the u.s slice of that pie on a percentage basis got smaller and smaller now you might think wow that sounds bad for the u.s but it's not because it's a much It's small. It's maybe a smaller slice of the pie, but it's a much bigger pie. So the U.S. has clearly prospered over the last 70 years, and we've benefited from the growth of the rest of the world. I see that growth continuing, and of course, it's not just the industrial countries that that were destroyed in World War II that've recovered, but many of the rest of the countries, what we used to call the Third World, are also seeing their economies blossom, and I, I. I'm an optimist, I see that continuing. So I see, I, th- I see the world economic pie getting bigger. I see the U.S. economy growing with it, even as the U.S. economy becomes a smaller part of that pie. And at some point when that percentage is small enough, and I'm not sure what that percentage is, then I'm going to say even the U.S. Isn't, isn't dominant enough anymore to be the only place to be. I don't see this happening in the next few years. I'm not even sure I see it happening in my lifetime, but maybe in my daughter's lifetime, and she's 29. So it might be something that she's going to want to think about in a decade or two. And, of course, you never know. I mean, it could happen much more quickly. Something could happen to derail the process that I just described. It might not happen at all, but it's something that I tell her to pay attention to. Ben,
0: first JL, thank you for writing. <clears throat> excuse me, the Simple Path to Wealth, just amazing book, and the thing I love the most about it is specificity, which sets it apart from others. Uh, my question is, uh, an investment obviously behaves a lot differently depending on how much it's taken up by people. So, you know, if one percent of the world is following your strategy versus if ninety-nine percent of the world is following your strategy. Are there any conditions under which you would no longer recommend indexing as the best strategy? So great, great question. Before
2: I answer it, though, when I going back to the comment you said about how specific my advice is, when I gave my Google talk a couple of years ago, the interviewer, uh, Rachel, by name, asked me a question that went something along the lines of, you know, why aren't other investment writers as specific in what they recommend as you are and i'd never been asked that before and i I said well i obviously i can't get into their heads so i can't tell you why they're not more specific but the reason my book is so specific is i wrote it for one person you know i wrote it for my daughter this is exactly what i tell jessica she ought to do and if you were counseling Ben, your daughter or your son on anything. Three yeah. Well, you're counseling your daughters, whether it's investing or anything else, you you're not gonna give them vague advice, you're gonna give them the most specific advice you can. So that's that's the reason that I did that. To to your question, would there ever be a case where I, I didn't recommend indexing? Um, you know, I think about that a lot. And I, because my investment approach over the decades changed and It's been pretty solidly indexing for a couple of decades now, but I I think to myself, you know, is there something I'm missing? Is there something that's that's changing? And never say never, but I I can't conceive of what would change it as long as we have a capitalist uh, economy, and as long as countries in the world have a capitalist economy, which is dynamic. And is self-cleansing and and keeps changing and and uh, and growing. I, I just I I can't see what would what would change me from that path. The other part of your question that's a little bit implied, I think, is what happens if everybody starts indexing, and does that change things? And of course, there's a lot of articles that have been written about why indexing is bad because it's. It's going to destroy the way companies are valued because nobody's really looking at the fundamentals of a company anymore. And I suppose that if indexing got to a certain level, that might be a concern. We're not. We're nowhere near that level. Uh, Jack Bogle, when he was alive, addressed this question on a pretty frequent basis and made a compelling case that, we're so far from that level that it's not a concern he talks about there is so much more active trading going on today that is setting prices for stocks than there was back in the 50s and 60s when he was coming up just because the market is bigger so i think it's a little bit of a non-issue the other thing i think is were that ever to happen were indexing ever to get to a point where it was dominant enough that it was affecting the pricing of the underlying equities, then suddenly active management management would be a more powerful tool that would be more readily able to outperform the index. And of course, there are always going to be people trying to do that. And if that were to happen, then suddenly you'd be having active funds routinely outperforming the index. And then, of course, the herd would go the other direction. And balance in the universe would be restored. <laughs> thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness.
0: JL, thanks for, thanks for being here. Uh, my pleasure. Um, my question for you is, uh, if you were to give three pieces of advice to uh, a young person, say, 15 to 25, what? and let me say, I, I'm not 15 to 25, <laughs> uh, but I work with a lot of young people who are in that age range, who are highly motivated to... Uh, to achieve early financial independence. So I want to pass on what you say to them. So what would be your three pieces of advice for a young person today?
2: In terms of investing?
0: Investing, mindset, uh, saving money, earning extra money, oh, all that.
2: Okay, that's a,
0: that's a tough question. We can, uh, we can stick to investing if you want to.
2: Uh, well, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. First of all, the investing part is probably probably pretty simple. And that is obviously, you know, start early. Uh, invest in VTSAX or the ETF equivalent of it uh, and hold it forever I mean my holding period for VTSAX is literally forever the only time I'd ever sell any of it would be maybe selling small pieces of it off to support myself when you're living on the portfolio but because it's self cleansing I never have to think about it I can just literally own it forever I think in terms of life advice, I would say understand that, that spending money isn't what necessarily makes you happy. It's good to have money, but you can have a very happy, fulfilling, exciting life without spending every dime that you earn. And I think that the common way that most Americans think about their money is that if I save my money, I'm depriving myself. I'm having a lower quality of life. Um, I saved 50% of my income from the very beginning, my first professional job. And I never once felt that I was depriving myself of anything. I've had a pretty full and rich life. I've been able to travel the world. Uh, I don't have a lot of material desires, but the few I've had, have, you know, I've owned homes and cars and, and what have you. Um, I think the way to think about it is not when you're saving and investing your money you're not depriving yourself you're simply making a different spending choice so i've said to people in interviews i've spent every dime that has ever come into my possession and i've spent those dimes almost immediately the only difference is that i've spent 50 percent of them consistently on buying the thing that was most important to me and that's my freedom and of course, you buy your freedom by buying investments that ultimately will will support you i'm i 'm not the boss of anybody else 's life, and i wouldn 't presume to say everybody should do that. you know my freedom 's really important to me; it might not be important to somebody else you know a bigger house or a fancier car or a wardrobe or whatever. Maybe those things are more important than your freedom, and that 's only the choice you can make but the reason i'm glad to see my book be successful is the more people read it the more people will realize at least that there is this choice that they're making and i think a lot of people and maybe young people don't even know that there that there is this choice they could make to actually buy freedom that that's one of the things they can acquire with their money and then if they know that that's a choice and they say yeah that's not that important to me. I'd rather have this than, hey, it's your life, it's your money. But at least you know it's an option. Does that help at all? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Jill. you said something else in The Simple Path to Wealth that resonated with me and Dan's question. And it reminded me of a Mark Twain quote. I think he said, I have worried about many things in life, none of which ever came true. And in the book, you said, and I can relate to this too, yeah. like I've spent so much time worrying about all this bullshit. And it was such a waste of time because none, none of it ever happened, but that's just the way I am. Right. So do you have anything else to say about that? Like, and I, this made me think of Pete. I think he might have left, but Pete has, Pete's the eternal optimist. Like Everything is always yeah. going to be great. And I'm like a natural pessimist too, but we all should strive to be more like him because most of the things you worry about never end up happening. And I think there's a lot of value to being an optimist, even if you have to really force yourself to do it
2: yeah i've i and you know, i've i have spent my life forcing myself to be an optimist because i'm in i i guess temperamentally i'm i'm inclined to be pessimistic. my mother was a terrible pessimist so i I don't know if it's genetic or if that's just the way I was raised but there's there's really no upside to pessimism you know and there's a lot of upside to to optimism and uh uh you know yeah i don 't know what else to say about that but yeah it's it 's a much healthier way to live, and you know do bad things happen? Of course, bad things happen, but the bad thing you 're afraid is going to happen probably is never going to happen. The thing that you never think about if is what 's going to blindside you, so there's only there's only so much you can prepare for, right? So, Black Swans, for instance, when, in when, his good book, when the Black Swan came out, you know, I got a lot of pushback about that. Well, you know, JL, what if there's this huge Black Swan and, and you know the economy tanks and everything goes to hell? And Well, okay, you have to understand that Black Swans, by their nature, are very, very rare events. And when you're creating your investment strategy for your life, it seems to me you want to think do i want to structure my portfolio for a very very rare event or do i want to structure my portfolio for what's going to happen the other 99.9 percent of the time for me the choice was obvious
1: okay so why don't we take two more questions in jail you'll be around for a little bit afterwards too or okay yeah cool yeah
0: Sure, you wanna come up here? Um I thought
2: there was your name. It's not my name. <laughs>
0: my name is Justin. Um but I shouldn't let my laziness uh serve as a, a crutch to not learn about new things. So I want to ask you something that I know nothing about, right. but I do know you've wrote, written a blog post about that I haven't read. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well lazy, you have me a dream. Right, right, right. So so can I uh get your thoughts on on cryptocurrency? Oh, not that I have that much in the way of of thoughts on cryptocurrencies. There are are three posts actually on my blog about crypto. Uh, One goes back to 2017, it was written by a guy named Lucas who does the tech support on my blog and has for a number of years and he's an active investor in crypto and of course has been successful at it because everybody has I guess. Uh, And then this spring, at my request, he wrote a second guest post, kind of updating it, and I wrote a post around that. I'm trying to think, I think I published mine first and then did his as a follow-up, but I might have that reversed. Um, My take on it, first of all, I'm not an expert at all in crypto, but from the little bit I see, it strikes me as more of a speculation than an investment, and I'm not a speculator. Uh, So when you're buying crypto now, you're buying it in the hope and anticipation that somebody is going to pay more for it in the future. It's kind of like the same reason people buy gold, only it's a lot more active and volatile. Um, I don't see crypto as being a functional currency for a while, because when you have anything that's as volatile as cryptocurrencies are now, it's very hard to use it as a currency because how do you spend something that might be worth twice as much in a week or half as much in a week and how do you accept something uh, a currency that you, you might it might be worth half as much in a week after you accept it or maybe twice as much you know so it's it's a speculation even if you're trying to spend it or take it and i know there are places that are beginning to try to do that so i'm not a speculator and you know people have said to me well gee you know if you'd followed lucas's advice in 2017 you would have made a whole lot of money and they're absolutely right i mean if i had known in 2017 what 2021 was going to look like i would have sold everything and put it in bitcoin but i didn't know that and nobody knew that and so what I really have to say is, well, knowing what I knew in 2017, am I comfortable with my decision not to buy it? And the answer to that is yes.
1: Yeah, these. Uh, it's interesting you say 2017, and that's a very short amount of time. It's five years. So yeah. I think about this a lot, and you alluded to my investment in Tesla, which has done very, very well. But the thing about index funds is I can have a reasonable degree of confidence that VTSAX will be worth more in two decades from now. and. You had talked about some of the old companies like Sears and GE, and, and to me, those companies are like the, the Nokia and uh, and some of the phone companies before the iPhone came out. So it it's silly to to talk about those short-term movements. I think like like Tesla might not even be a thing in five years. It probably still will be a thing in five years, but maybe not not ten. Disruption happens quick, quicker. And you could make a lot of money, but how do you know when to get off this train where VTSAX, you can buy it and not worry about over the decades. So I think that's the true value in well, that, index yeah, investing. Yeah,
2: that is the beauty of it. It's self-cleansing. So I never have to worry about when to sell VTSAX. And if you own any individual stock, you need to be thinking about the lifespan of that company and where it is at the moment that you buy it and where you might want to step off off that train we were talking before we sat down for the formal part of this meeting, you and I and a few other people, and I was recounting, um, you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a concept that came an investing concept that came out called the Nifty 50. And the idea was that you'd go out and buy the top 50 companies in the U.S. economy, and you could buy those 50 companies, you could take the stock certificate. And in those days, you actually got a stock certificate, a physical one, put in your safe deposit box in, the, box in the bank and forget about it and hold it forever. And, you know, decades later, you'd be fine. Well, the problem with that, unlike indexing, is there's no cleansing process. And the nifty fifty was companies like General Motors and Polaroid and Sears and Xerox and And, you know, companies that are afterthoughts now, you would have, over the decades, steadily lost money because the high flyers in a dynamic economy don't stay the high flyers. When I gave my talk at Google, I was, you know, at Google telling them that Google is not always going to be dominant. That's a pretty (laughs) gutsy thing to say. And I don't know how Google is going to lose their position or when or to whom, but I know enough about history to know that no company, you know, Sears, which is kind of a laughing stock now, at the time, they were extraordinarily. People don't today appreciate how powerful a company Sears once was. It built the tallest building in the world and it stayed and held that record for I don't know how long you told me. Uh, and yet, it's yesterday's news today and I guarantee you that when they were building the Sears Tower, which has been renamed a couple of times, nobody at Sears would have believed me if I stood up in front of their group of people and said, this too won't last forever. was
1: my grandmother's Amazon.
2: What's here's that? Here's my grandmother's Amazon. It you was. order the stuff and shows up. And the You're making me stopped. feel old, saying it was your grandmother. It was, it was my Amazon pal. It was. I mean, I'm, I used to be Yeah, Tell yeah, stories like you order the stuff and it
1: shows up.
2: Absolutely. parcel would,
1: post, you know, it's, in it's, Wisconsin, middle of
2: nowhere. It, that was. That's actually. That's how Sears and Roebuck at the time. Yeah. They came out with this incredible catalog. They mail out to rural areas of the country, and you could, you know, in. In places in the country where you had access to nothing, you suddenly got this big book and you could put an order in and then it would magically show up in your door. That's a great analogy of the Amazon of its time. Yeah. yeah. It was a big catalog, Jeff too. Jeff Bezos has come out and said, somebody will someday eat Amazon's lunch, which shows remarkable perception on his white part, I think.
1: It was a big catalog, too. Remember that thing? Like, how many trees had to die for Sears and It
2: wasn't, but yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, at the end, it was a (laughs) huge catalog.
1: This, this conversation hits home because my first job out of school was in the IT department at Sears. And they had this big campaign called the softer side of Sears. If you're old, you'll remember this. And, uh, yeah. and it was their heyday. Like, they had peaked. Like, I remember the CEO would fly in this helicopter every day. Yeah. And he lived, like, five miles away. Like, dude, you couldn't, like, get in the limo or whatever. Like, he had to take a helicopter. No, but why?
2: He was running yeah. Sears.
1: Yeah. But then it went down quickly, and there were all these layoffs. It was like I lived through that demise. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah,
2: and it was shockingly quick.
1: Very quick, and you know? things will be quicker now. Like yeah, know, like and what and I look.
2: if anything, the economy. That's a good point. If anything, the economy is more dynamic. Yep. So.
1: Yeah. One more question. Um, Chelsea, do you want to come up here and say it? And yeah. No pressure about this. is the last know. one, so we got to end on something yeah. really totally. Awesome. I also it's worked at Sears for like three weeks as a teenager.
0: It's crazy. <laughs> it grows, I forgot right? about it.
1: I this is doesn't have anything to do with investing, so I'm sorry to switch the topic. But um, one thing that I've really loved with this community is the community aspect. Right. And so I am wondering, do you have any more Chautauquas planned?
2: Yes, actually. Uh, uh, Chautauqua, we, we've we missed Chautauqua the last couple of years because of COVID. So, last Chautauquas were in 2019. So, we missed 2020, 2021. But we are going to be back in 2022 and we are going to Columbia. Yeah.
1: Wow. So, Chautauquas are this thing, jail runs. You go spend a week with a bunch of like-minded FI people, and I've been, uh, three of them, Ecuador. You've been a
2: speaker.
1: Yeah, Ecuador. I was fortunate enough to be a speaker. I still don't think I deserve that, but I'll, I'll take it. Ecuador, Greece, and the UK. And, uh, uh, yeah, amazing experience. The people I've been to, like, like I think at all these uh, events, you'll meet friends like David and, and Chelsea. I've become friends with you, and I'm so thankful for that. But Chautauqua takes it up a notch like Ellen and Katie Donegan like they're such good people and you met them at the same one I did and Ecuador. Yeah. our now we're all lifelong friends and it's I spent two thousand or whatever for this thing, but it was worth far more than that because of the The lifelong bonds I've made just an incredible experience I'm, I'm so thankful
2: Yeah, for those of you who don't know Ellen and Katie who he, he just referenced a uh, British couple and they came to Chautauqua when it was in Ecuador and I had wanted, I had it in the back of my mind uh, to move it to uh, Europe. And uh, when I met Alan and Katie, uh, they were so dynamic. And as I got to know them over the course of the week, it, it finally, it dawned on me, literally, as they were about to leave and go to the airport, and I, I pulled Alan aside and I said, uh, you know, I want to put a bug in your ear. You don't have to give me an answer now, but just something to think about. Just kind of a wild idea. But how would you and Katie feel about doing the logistics and running a a, a Chautauqua in Europe? And Alan, being Alan, looked at me and he said, "JL, we're going to do it." And he turned around and got in the bus and went to, <laughs> went to, went to, went to went and caught his plane. And ten months later, I was in the UK doing a Chautauqua. <laughs> so they're they're an incredible couple.
1: Yeah, the whole community aspect is probably the best part for me. I think the uh, no yeah the finance part is great, but I think the finance part acts as a filter because if we have money in common, we probably have a lot of other things in common. So when we go to these things like Chautauqua's or even here, the thing I think about is we hardly ever talk about money. We talk about stuff more important, and I think that's how it should be because money should be put in its place. It's a tool. It's something that we should use to build a better life, and it's sad that we have to talk about it at all. I wish we would, so we could talk about it, help each other out, and get past it, and start living life. Start living life beyond money. Where was I going with that? But yeah, one of the things with you, JL, is uh, uh,
2: <laughs> can't help you with where you're going. <laughs>
1: No, it all comes I back was, to you.
2: I was kind of looking forward to finding out. Yeah, no,
1: no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's good I, I remember now, and this is such a good time, because <laughs> I, I was a stock investor. I didn't know what the hell an index fund was, but I, and I didn't know who this guy was, too, but I read the Mr. Money Mustache blog, and then you had a guest post on there. Yeah. And I'm an old stubborn fart, and sometimes we let our egos get in the way, and we don't want to give up our beliefs, but I'm like, yeah, jail made a... A really strong case for index funds. I need to reconsider everything I've been doing, and then I remember I went to this event, this FinCon event in St. Louis.
2: Tesla results. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not so much. (laughs) Uh,
1: I met you for the first time at the end of 2013, and I even this is so embarrassing. I probably never told you this before, but I remember I came up the escalator, and there you Mm were, like up there. And I took a discreetly took a picture of you, and I have it so I, I could prove this. I'm like, oh shit. And now I have to talk to him. I hope I'm not gonna seem like an and ass when I talk was it, to him. It yeah, I was at FinCon. I think it was, the St. Louis one, right? You were there. Yeah, I was at St. Louis. Y- yeah, yeah, you were there. So I met you for the first time, but I was so afraid to talk to you. But that was back 2013. Well, you have been, eh? and I still am kind of know.
2: mean, <laughs> who do you think you are? Right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> but, but here we are. I, I could say we're friends, like nine years later, and I'm so thankful for that. So I'm thankful that you inform my investing and turn that around but i'm more thankful that we're friends and we get to hang out and do stuff like like this right now yeah that the one closing thought i have and then i'll turn it back to you for your closing thought is the thing that's really good about your books the simple path to wealth and your new one is they provide really good advice but there's lots of books that can do that but they don't tell in an entertaining fun fashion and your books are a Super fun reading. and there's not many books about money that you can say that about. Uh, a lot of them will just put you to sleep, but your books are actually fun, and I think that's where the true value comes from. So you, you give that to someone and they read it, and they're learning a lesson, even if they don't realize they're learning a lesson. So yeah, and how many, do you care to disclose how many copies of The Simple Path to Wealth you've sold and how many languages it has been translated into?
2: Yeah, so um, it's about 400,000. Uh, it's we have we have deals in 13 different languages. The way these international deals work, though, is you strike a deal, and then they have a like an 18 month or 24 month time horizon to actually publish the book. And I think it's only actually been published in uh, South Korea, Japan and maybe China, I think, is the third one, but there's ten others that are, are pending. And of course, they don't have to publish it at all. I mean, they they paid the advance, and, and uh, so, but presumably they will. But yeah, it's been, uh, if you include the Kindle and the print and the audible version, and now it's available in hardcover for the first time, and then the international editions, it's a little over 400,000 as we sit here today. Wow.
1: Are you big in Japan?
2: Actually, <laughs> actually Japan has been a very, very you know, that's been the star market. Wow. Surprisingly enough, yeah. I mean it's all the a lot of copies in Japan. I don't know off the top of my head, but like okay. 50,000 so far.
1: Okay, I, I smell future Chautauqua in Japan. You might have to learn yeah, some know. Japanese. There you go. <laughs> JL, do you have any final, what final thoughts do you have before we close tonight?
2: Oh, I, well, first of all, I, you know, that's thank you for the very kind words and and for all the kidding. It's the, one of the great things about uh, about having started this blog and and publishing the book in Chautauqua is the incredible people that I've met in the journey, like like this guy and like several of the people in this room that I've already met and and the new ones that I get to meet tonight. It's just, it's stunning to me that I have these kinds of people in my life. And if my daughter had listened to me when she was young, none of this would have happened. So I have, I have a huge debt of gratitude to, towards her for for not having listened, and it's... It's, it's one of those things I, I never would have imagined this in 2011 when I started this blog, and now I can't imagine my life without it. So, you know, I get thanked a lot uh, for my book and uh, do events like this, but as they said in Office Space, the pleasure's all on this side of the table. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, thank you, Jessica, for not listening to your father, if you're listening to this. And thank you, JL, for being here tonight. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you for the invitation. It's, you, I hope you can tell it's an enormous amount of fun for me to be here and a true honor, so thanks for, for letting me come.
1: Okay. Unfortunately, we are out of beer.
2: Oh, well, screw you. you. <laughs>
1: but JO will be hanging out. <laughs> <Not
2: that now. laughs> I think
1: now. There's beer across the street, right? Anyone out want of beer? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, thank you everyone. Thank
2: you.
0: Thanks a lot for checking out this episode. And if you dig it, please do subscribe. We have a couple other episodes where we talk to JL and we have other interviews with people that uh, you may know out there like J.D. Roth or Alan Donegan. And of course, Carl and I have our own episodes where we just ramble on. We have a good time. So we appreciate you checking it out and we'll catch you on the next episode.